So let's stand for the reading of God's Word. 24 verses 1 and 2. We'll be looking at the rest of the chapter this evening. The Bible says, And again the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he moved David against them to say, Go number Israel and Judah. For the king said to Joab, the captain of the host which was with him, Go now through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan even to Beersheba, and number ye the people, that I may know the number of them. Again, the title of our Bible study is How to Properly Get Right with God. Let's pray. God, help us tonight. Give us a clarity of mind and heart. And uh, Lord, um, help us to see sin in our hearts and to deal with it as you would have us deal with it, to be truly repentant. Help us to look at the model that David offers us here. And Lord, help us to be people who are right with you, truly right with you. When we get out of line, may we properly get right with you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Well, we said last week that uh, the term get right with God is a phrase that's often used with preachers and in church. You'll hear that regularly if you go to a good church to talk quite a bit about being right with God. What does it mean to be right with God. What does that phrase even mean? And we said last week that uh, if I'm right with my kids and my kids are right with me, then we enjoy each other's fellowship. There's no ought or animus between us. There's unity, there's harmony, there's fellowship. There have been times in my marriage where me and Angela were not right with each other. We were irritated with one another, or had an argument with one another, weren't talking to one another, or maybe we're talking in an unpleasant way with one another. There was Uh, ought between us, and then we clear the air and get things right, and we're right with each other. Likewise, we need to be right with God. Now, the thing is that when you when you have uh, a falling out with another human, usually there's room for both parties to be wrong, right? Uh, There's, uh, uh, if Angel and I are not getting along, even if it is 90% my fault, it would still be 10% her fault, or 10% her fault, or 10% my fault, 90% her fault. But with God, it's never His fault. If you're not right with God, it is never God's fault. It is always your fault. And so when you're not right with God, God does not owe you an apology. Don't wait on one. Don't wait on one. Don't wait on God to come and, oh, I'm sorry. Listen, God never ever gets it wrong. If you and God are not right with each other, you owe God the apology. He does not owe you an apology. And so I want to encourage you to turn over to James 4 and just put a marker there. Um, We uh, spent most of our time last week dissecting James 4. And we said James 4, uh, 6 through 10 is the New Testament passage uh, that uh, lays out David's formula for repentance. And so uh, we saw, I'm just going to cover this real quick. We saw out of verse 6 that the first requirement to get right with God is that you have to humble your heart and you have to kick pride out of the way. Pride keeps you from getting right with God. And if, you won't, if you're not willing to change your behavior, you're not willing to humble yourself and admit your sin to God and agree with God on your sin, then it's because you have pride there and uh, God resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Verse 7, we said that the next step is that you agree to obey God and His rules and choose to resist or rebel from Satan and his rules. We said verse 7 could be read two ways. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil 
and he will flee from you. It could also be read, submit yourselves therefore to the devil, resist God, and he will flee from you. If you're going to submit to Satan in his way, your God is not going to have anything to do with you. If you submit to God in his way, Satan is not going to want to have anything to do with you. So you have to make the choice to submit yourself to God, push away the temptation of the devil, and uh, the devil will flee from you. Then we said, verse 8, draw nigh to God, he will draw nigh to you. We said that you have to, uh, you have to, after you have confessed and forsaken your sin, uh, God gives you a fresh start. I use the example that if my child does something very wrong and uh, there is a severe punishment that's handed down, uh, that sort of creates a coldness in our relationship. And if my child humbles himself or herself and comes and says, Dad, I was wrong, can you forgive me? That eliminates the problem between us, but the coldness remains until we start making steps toward each other. And when you blow it with God, you can apologize to God. There's still a distance between you. There's still a coldness in that relationship. But as you take a step toward God, verse 8, God takes a step toward you. As you cleanse your hands, the outward and you purify your heart the inward, you increase that intimacy and that closeness between you and your Savior. Verse 9, Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. When we have sinned, it's not time to make light of it. It's not time to joke about it. It's not time to shrug it off as though it doesn't matter. God wants you to be serious. He wants you to get on your face. He wants you to be afflicted. He wants you to mourn. He wants you to shed tears. He wants you to groan. And it's not a fabricated thing. You you remember back in Nineveh, Jonah, he got up in the center of the city and he preached a very short sermon about how God was going to condemn them and destroy them. And word got back to the king and the king announced a fast and a time of mourning. And he even had the cows mourn. Uh, Even the animals were to mourn. And they uh, put ash on their head. They wept. They were sorrowful. You may remember that um, Ezra did the same thing when he saw all of the unholy marriages there uh, in uh, Israel after they had come back from Babylon. And God looked down and He saw the affliction and the sorrow and the mourning and the weeping. And what did He do? He forgave them. Then verse 10, Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. So this is the formula to get right with God. Now, back in 2 Samuel 24, we see that David blows it big time. David does wrong big time, and he gets God angry with him. And and then uh, David shows us the formula of how to get right with God. So we're going to reference back to James 4 all throughout the Bible study. So turn back over to 2 Samuel 24, put a marker in James 4, And um, be ready to turn back over there. We said last week, we said, number one, the source of the senses. The source of the senses. Now, verse 1 of 2 Samuel 24 seems to indicate that it was God that tempted David to sin. Look back at verse 1. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he moved David against them to say, Go number uh, Israel and Judah. Look down at verse 10. And David's heart smote him after he numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned. So did God tempt David to sin? The answer is no. God did not tempt David to sin. You say, well, that's what the Bible says. How, pastor, can you say that's not what the Bible says? Well, you have to get the whole picture. First Chronicles 21 offers us 
uh, another angle on the story. There's another place you need to put a marker because we'll be turning over to First Chronicles 21 quite a bit tonight as well. Look at verse 1 of First Chronicles 21, and we get the rest of the picture of what's going on here. And Satan stood up against Israel and provoked David to number Israel. And David said to Joab and the rulers of the people, Go, number Israel from Beersheba even to Dan, or from one coast to the other, and bring the number to them in that I may know it. So First Chronicles 21 says Satan provoked David, but Second Samuel 24 says God provoked David. So which one was it? And the answer is both. Both. And here's what I believe happened. I believe that Satan went to God and said, let me go tempt David. And um, God gave his permission for Satan to go and tempt David. Letter B, we see God's permission. God's permission. I gave you a parallel example of this happening out of Job 1. You remember, uh, Satan, go, or, or Satan goes to heaven and he's having a conversation with God. And it, it God, it's, God says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? How he's perfect, he, he, he hates evil, he eschews evil, he's upright. And Satan says, yeah, well that's because you've got this wall around him. And if you'll just remove the wall and let me at him, he'll curse you to your face. And you know what God does? He says to Satan, go ahead. Go ahead. Now, did God tempt Job or did Satan tempt Job? The answer is Satan tempted Job and God signed off on it. Now, uh, Job chapter 1, the end of the chapter, Job says, The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So from Job's perspective, it was not Satan tempting him. He saw that God had allowed this to happen. And so we have the same scenario taking place here in 2 Samuel 24, God allows Satan to tempt David to go and number the people. What did Satan play on? What sin in David's heart uh, did Satan exploit? Let her see. We saw David's pride. David's pride. And we read from verse 2 down through verse number 9. And God, or David tells Joab, go and number the people. Now, uh, again, just to rehash quickly, is it a sin... For a king to get a census of his people. In and of itself, it is not a sin. Alright? In fact, you could argue that it's wise. You, you need to know uh, the state of your flock. You need to know how many people you have within the borders of your country. But uh, that there's nothing wrong in and of itself. What made it wrong was not the action. Listen now, because this is going to lead us into point two. It was the motive behind the action. David did not just want the number so that he could have it logged away somewhere. David didn't just want the number so that he could be a good steward over the people God had given him. David wanted the number so that he could bow up in pride and say, look at the vast kingdom that over the 40 years that I have built, look what I have built. And God does not do well with pride. God does not do well when we want to put ourselves out there and say, look what I did. Look what I did. You're given a life group to, to lead here at our church. And you have the largest life group of that quarter. It's not, well, I must be some great teacher. Look at how many people uh, signed up for my class. In fact, I've got 30 in mine. and The pastor only has 10. I must be a better teacher. This is not a competition, folks. It's not a competition. 
It's not a competition for me to look around at the other pastors in Connecticut and say, look how much bigger White Oak is than these churches. No, 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 no. No, listen, this is not a numbers game. Uh, God be glorified. He is the one that gets all the glory and all the praise and all the credit. David, let's not forget that you are this anonymous, forgotten little shepherd boy in a field that did not even get invited when Samuel came to anoint a king. In fact, Samuel had to request that the last son be brought in. David, if it wasn't for God pulling you out of the field and having your head anointed with oil and chastening you in the wilderness when you were operated by your own logic instead of following the Lord and then chastening you when you fell with Bathsheba and protecting you against Goliath and protecting you in the field against other giants. Listen, David, it's not about you. It's about the Lord who has used you in a mighty way. And whatever good comes out of your life, you make sure that you don't absorb any glory that belongs to the Lord. You have kids that are growing up and turning out right, you give the glory to the Lord. Uh, you have a marriage that has uh, lasted 20, 30, 40, 50, and in the Yankowski's case, 60 plus years. Uh, you don't say, well, I did this and I did that and I've got this skill down. Or I have God, to God be the glory, great things He hath done. Was the, the numbering of the people as sin in and of itself? Well, no, unless God somewhere directly told David not to do it, uh, and it was a matter of disobedience, but what made it a sin was David's pride. Satan came down, and he tempted David to be risen up in pride. Look at James chapter 4, look at verse 6. James 4, verse 6. Do I have any men in the room tonight that would prefer not to read? If I called on you. Okay, anybody else? All right, I don't want to call anybody that doesn't want to read. James chapter 4 I can't promise I'm going to get to everybody, okay? So if I don't get to you, it isn't because I don't like you. I love all of you, all right? James 4, except Josh. But that's I'm teasing. James 4, (laughs) Joey, have I loved? Josh, have I hated? No, I'm just teasing. So Um, James 4 and verse number 6. This this Puerto Rican, Josh, not that Puerto Rican. Could you you read James 4, verse 6 for us? God giveth grace unto the humble. David, God's resisting you because you're risen up in pride. If you humble your heart, then you can be you can be healed. And you know what we're going to see in the story of David tonight? We're going to see a man who is risen up in pride, punished by God, but instead of bucking against God's punishment, he accepted it and he corrected himself. All right? Let's move on to number two. The realization of his sin. The realization of his sin. So we saw... Uh, we saw point number one, the reason for the senses. Now we see the realization of his sin. Look down at verse number 10 of Second Samuel 24. The Bible says, And David's heart smote him after that he had numbered the people. And David said unto the Lord, I have sinned. Underline those three words in your Bible. I have sinned greatly in that I have done um, and now I beseech thee, O Lord, take away the iniquity of thy servant, for I have done very foolishly. For when David was up in the morning, the word of the Lord came unto the prophet God, Agad, David's seer, saying. And we'll look at David, Agad's message here in just a little bit. Um, those three words, I have sinned. 
I want to ask you a question this evening. How do you respond when someone confronts your sin? How do you respond when someone confronts your sin? You know, the way that we want to respond is in the flesh. How, do, how, how does your flesh tell you to respond when someone confronts your sin? If I pulled you aside after church tonight, as your shepherd, and I said to you, I see this in your life and it's wrong and you need to stop. Would you get offended? Would you push aside? Now, you go back to Genesis 3 and 4, and you see how we're not to respond. The first response that's of the flesh, the most common response when our sin is confronted, is that we blame others. We blame others. You remember when uh, the Lord came down into the cool of the, of the day, and Adam and Eve were hiding? You remember that? God asked Adam a question he already knew the answer to. He said, Adam, where are you? Where are you, Adam? You know, sometimes God asks us obvious questions because he wants us to be honest with herself. And and what did Adam say? He said, I'm hiding. Well, David, why are you hiding? He said, because I'm naked. Well, David, who told you you were naked? Did you eat of the fruit? Now, God already knew the answer to each of these questions. You know what God was trying to do with Adam? He was trying to confront his sin. You know what Adam said? He said, it was the woman that thou gavest me. Hey, don't look at me. It's not me. It was her and it was you. And the Lord looked at Eve and said, Eve, what have you done? And what did Eve say? It was the serpent. He beguiled me. He deceived me. And you know, I find today that people are still blaming others over their own sin. They're still blaming others. It was the way I was raised. It's I'm a product of my circumstances. What are we doing? We're not taking personal responsibility. We're blaming something or someone else. Such and such tempted me. Well, he did it. Well, she did it. Deflect, deflect, deflect. Oh, it's not all that bad. I have a husband and wife who will sit in my office and having marriage problems. And I like to ask, I open with prayer. And I'll look at the husband and I'll say, we're going to do a little exercise here. Tell me why you're the problem in the marriage. And you know what I find is that when I have a couple of my officers having marriage problems, the husband's ready to tell me why his wife is the problem, but he's not ready to tell me why he's the problem. And he squirms in that chair and has a hard time coming up with an answer every single time. Then I look at the wife and say, tell me why you're the problem in the marriage. And for some reason, she has a hard time giving me an answer too. Because we're really good at knowing why someone else is in the wrong. We're not very good at knowing why we're in the wrong. 
Here, David has his sin confronted. And you know what David says? He says, I have sinned. But there's a second response that's a fleshly response. And that's found in Genesis 4 with Cain and Abel. And you know what uh, that response is? Is um, we deny any wrongdoing altogether. Well, there's nothing wrong with that. I didn't do that. I don't know what you're talking about. What's wrong with that? Cain literally kills Abel. Murder! And God comes down and says, Cain, where's your brother? Again, a question God knew the answer to. And you know what Cain didn't do? He didn't blame anyone. He just said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? (laughs) You know what he's doing? He's denying any wrongdoing outright. And God says to Cain, He says, your, the blood of your brother calls out from the ground. You killed him. And God says, as a result, you're going to be cut off and separated and sent out, excommunicated. Cain goes, the punishment is too great on me. Unwilling to accept his own wrong. Denying that he did anything wrong to begin with. You know, the healthy response is David's response. Look back at verse 10. Look back at verse 10. David says, in verse 10, he says, I have sinned. Let me give you quickly an A and a B here. Notice letter A, David confronted. David confronted. When your sins confronted... What do you do? What do you do? I've shared this a long time ago. I don't know that anyone would even remember this, but we have a way of remembering stories. So if you were in church when I share it, probably you'll remember this. I remember writing to work. I was a college student. I was writing to work in a 1990 Ford Tempo. How do you remember? How many of you remember the Ford Tempos? Piece of junk car. It was a mustard color yellow. Ugly, ugly, ugly car. And uh, me and my brother went in and bought this car together. I feel bad because I drove it a lot more than he did. And, and then I, I rear-ended someone and blew the head gasket on it. And that was it. But um, driving this car to work, driving down 294 in Chicago, I'm in the right lane. I'm going 70 and a 55. You say, Pastor... You're speeding. Yes, I was speeding. But you know what? I was the slow car on the road. Most folks were doing 75 and 80. And lo and behold, this officer comes up behind me and he pulls me over. And I'm thinking, what's he pulling me over for? And he says, license and registration. And so I, you know, get it together and I hand it out the window. He goes back to his car. He writes me up a ticket. He comes back and he says, here's a ticket for speeding. And you know what I did? Well, I wasn't going as fast as them. Boy, I'm blaming others. Right? I'm denying any wrongdoing. And uh, once my, you know, my pride's all worked up, and I roll the window up, and I'm, I'm, I'm getting back on the road, and I'm just fuming. I can't believe I've gotten a ticket when I was the slow car on the road. And then the Spirit of God said to me, Were you speeding? And I said, yes, I was. 
Did you deserve the ticket? Yes, I did. Then don't worry about anybody else. You just worry about yourself. What do you do when you're confronted? Letter B, we see David's conscious. David's conscious. Look back at verse 10. The Bible says, And David's heart smote him. David's heart smote him. You know, God writes on the hearts of everyone His laws. We call those the natural laws. Long before God gave Moses the Ten Commandments on Sinai, everyone knew it was a sin to murder. Everyone knew that. Long before God gave Moses the commandments on Sinai, everyone knew it was a sin to lie. That's written on your heart. You can go to the most uncivilized corner of the globe and find people who are barbaric in their behavior. They know it's wrong to murder and lie. They know it's wrong. David's heart was smitten over his sin. And you know what? If you're saved this evening, you don't just have a conscience. You have the Holy Spirit. And He pricks your heart when you step out of bounds. Let her see. We see David's confession. Psalm 51, verse 3. We find the story of David after he had sinned with Bathsheba. He said, For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. So, Here's the story. David sends out Joab to uh, get a census, a number of the people, and Joab comes back and gives David the number. David's heart is lifted up in pride, and uh, God sends Gad, the prophet, the seer, to come and confront David over his sin. And uh, the seer says to David, you are wrong, buddy, and, and, and God's going to punish you. And immediately, David's heart is smitten, and he puts his head down, and he doesn't say, well, the devil tempted me, and, and God, you even signed off on it. No, he puts his head down, and he says, I have sinned. I have done wrong. Uh, how uh, do you uh, behave when you know that you've done wrong? Do you shrug it off and keep on going and keep sinning, or... Are you quick to realize your sin? Number three, we see the punishment of David selected. The punishment of David selected. Look down at verse number 12. So God tells Gad to go to David and say, Go and say unto David, Thus saith the Lord, I offer thee three things. Choose thee one of them, that I may do it unto thee. So you get choice of three punishments. So God came to David and told him and said unto him, Shall seven years of famine come unto thee in thy land? Or wilt thou flee three months before thine enemies while they pursue thee? Or that there be three days pestilence or disease in thy land? Now advise and see what answer I shall return to him that sent me. And David said unto God, I am in a great strait. I'm in a bad spot. I'm between a rock and a hard place. Let us fall now into the hand of the Lord, for His mercies are great, and let me not fall into the hands of man. Let me give you here a couple of sub-points. Notice uh, letter A, God's choices offered. God's choices offered. We just read them. What were they? God comes to him and says, Okay, this is what you've done, and you get your choice of punishment. How many of you parents with teenagers have ever used this method of punishment? All right, you've done wrong, door one, door two, door three. 
And uh, you're not going to like what's behind either of the any of the doors, right? Uh, but behind each door is a different punishment, right? I remember my father came to me when I had done wrong. I was in the seventh grade. He said, I can give you 25 demerits, which is school punishment, or I can take you in my office and I can spank you and wear you out, or I can ground you, all right? Ground you for a week to your room. You pick which of the three. There was no cell phones or, or game systems back then to take away, all right? And so I think I chose... The spanking. I think I just let him whip me and get it over with, right? And um, uh, so God goes, uh, Gad goes to David on behalf of God and says, Pick your punishment, David. Uh, there can either be seven years of famine throughout Israel, three months of losing in war to your enemies, or three days of pestilence or disease, deadly disease that will sweep across the country and kill. Letter B, we see David's confidence in God. Look down at verse number 14, and David said unto Gad, I am in a great strait. Let us fall now into the hands of the Lord, for his mercies are great, and let me not fall into the hands of man. David says, I would, I would rather deal with the direct hand of God than the indirect hand of God. David said, if God allows my enemies to pursue me for three months, my enemies will have no mercy on me. If, if I choose the seven-year option, now the land is punishing me. But if I choose three days of pestilence and God is directly sending His angel down to punish me, David says, then I know that I am in the hands of a God who is merciful. You know how David learned that God's heart uh, was that of mercy and compassion? Because David had spent a lifetime pursuing the heart of God and falling in love with God. I chose as a young man to have my dad spank me over a grounding or over demerits. You know why? Because I knew my dad deep down loved me. And when you know God and you know His heart and you know His hand of punishment is on you, listen, uh, Hebrews tells us, For whom the Lord loveth, He chasteneth, even as the Father, the Son, and whom He delighteth. God does not have some big stick looking to whack you over the head and hurt you. No, no. God only punishes you uh, to the point where He can correct you for the purpose of restoring that relationship with you. The heart of God is not to hurt you. The heart of God is to help you and heal you. David's confidence in God. Letter C, we see God's chastisement realized. We're going to read two passages here. and We're going to piece this story together from uh, 1 Samuel 24, and then we're going to get another angle of it from 1 Chronicles 21. Look at verse 15 of first, or 2 Samuel 24. Rather, The Bible says, So the Lord sent a pestilence unto Israel from the morning even to the time appointed, and there died... Of the people from Dan, even to Beersheba, look here, 70,000 men. God says, you're going to number the people out of pride. I'm going to take the people from you. And when the angel stretched out his hand upon Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord repented him of the evil and said to the angel that destroyed the people, it is enough, stay now thine hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing place of Aruna the Jebusite. And David spake unto the Lord when he saw the angel that smote the people and said, Lo, I have sinned and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, speaking of the Israelites, these sheep, what have they done? Let thine hand, I pray thee, be against me and against my father's house. Now, 
theologically, this is tough because it would seem to imply that God is performing evil based on the passage. But please understand that God is not the author of evil. He's not the author of temptation. Why then uh, does it seem to imply that here? It it is all on your perspective. To these 70,000 men that died, do you think they looked at this and saw it as evil? You think their family saw it as evil? David numbered the people, but yet we have to die because of David's sin? If you go back to verse 1, you learn that God was angry at Israel because of Israel's own sin. And God allowed David to fall into sin and use that sin as a reason to punish Israel for other sin. God does not commit evil. It was perceived as evil, but God does not permit evil. Now, uh, uh, God can allow evil to take place, and God does allow evil to take place. And because He's sovereign and He's God, He's allowed to do that. But God does not author evil. God is not directly one who sins evil. Look at First Chronicles 21. And look at verse 15, and we get another yet more details of this same exact story. First Chronicles 21 and Second Samuel 24 are the same story. Look at 21:15, and God sent an angel unto Jerusalem to destroy it. So he's already gone throughout the land. He's already killed 70,000, and now he's come to Jerusalem. And he was destroying the Lord beheld, and he repented him of the evil and said to the angel that destroyed, It is enough. Stay now thine hand. And the angel of the Lord stood by the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. And David lifted up his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord stand between. This is amazing. David's literally seeing this, okay? Saw the angel of the Lord stand between the heaven and the earth. So he's floating in the air between the heaven and the earth, having a drawn sword in his hand stretched out over Jerusalem. Then David and the elder of Israel, uh, who were clothed in sackcloth, fell upon their faces. And David said unto God, Is it not I that commanded the people to be numbered? Even I it is that have sinned and done evil indeed. But as for these sheep, what have they done? Let thine hand, I pray thee, O my Lord God, be on me and on my father's house, but not on my people, that they should be plagued. So, First Chronicles offers us the perspective that David literally sees this angel floating in the air with a sword drawn in Jerusalem by the threshing floor of Aruna or Ornan, as he's known here. Same person, Ornan the Jebusite or Aruna, as his name is called in Second Samuel 24. And looking at genealogies, this is the same person. So you have this angel just floating there, and uh, the Lord uh, is waiting on David uh, to truly repent, and he's going to completely call this off. So God's chastisement realized. Have you ever realized the chastening hand of God in your life? Do you know what it's like to be punished by God? Now, there's two possibilities here. The first possibility is that we're oblivious and and just unaware that these negative circumstances in my life are a result of God's hand of punishment. I find people, people, by the way, Pastor King uh, pointed this out on our podcast that is just out on Monday. Uh, and, and I thought this was a great point that he made. I see people in their 30s who are bitter at God because they don't like what's happening in their life. But the truth is, 
that if they had obeyed God in their 20s, they would not be dealing with what they're dealing with in their 30s. They're angry at God because they don't have this, that, or the other. They're lonely. They're discouraged. They're battling this, that, or the other. But the reality is is that they sowed the seeds of disobedience for a decade, and now they're realizing the punishing hand of God for it, and they want to be bitter at God for the punish, His punishing hand, when if they just obeyed ten years prior, they wouldn't be dealing with the pain they're dealing with right now. And they have spent all this time saying, well, it's not my fault, such and such did this to me, and such and such did that to me. Can I just say this evening that everybody here has a reason to point the finger somewhere else and say, it's not my fault, it's their fault. And you know what we need? We need to stand in the presence of God and say, it's me, it's me, it's me, O Lord. I'm not pointing the finger at anyone but myself. I'm going to look in the mirror and say, I am my own worst enemy. And the struggles in my life and the discomfort in my life and uh, the hardships in my life are no no one's fault except for my own for when I have disobeyed the Lord. Here David is realizing the chastising hand of God. He's seeing his own countrymen fall. He's realizing that as the leader, he has sinned against his people and the punishing hand of God is coming down. And David throws himself on the ground and he blames no one but himself and he asks God for healing. Number four, and lastly, we see the depth of David's sincerity. The depth of David's sincerity. Look at letter A. We see David's obedience. Look at verse 18. And Gad came that day. So David sees the angel in the sky. He's got sackcloth and ash, which was a symbol of mourning, a symbol of repentance. God sends Gad out of the, out of the, uh, the palace to, to David where he's mourning. And look at 18. And Gad came that day to David and said unto him, Go up, rear an altar unto the Lord in the threshing floor of Aruna, the, the Jebusite. We're back in 2 Samuel 24. And David, according to the saying of God, went up as the Lord commanded. So he obeyed. He obeyed. God sent God, and the preacher said, David, you need to go to the threshing floor, and you need to get things right. And David didn't just say, well, I'll do it when I'm ready. I'll do it when I want to. We're out of time, but I have to make sure I say this tonight. Why do you come to church? Is this just simply a social club for you to have friends that are, you know, a little more moral than people out in the world? And and that's a reason why you ought to come. But when the preacher stands up and says, the Bible says, and the Spirit of God pokes you inside and says, you need to change that, and you walk out and say, I'll get to it eventually. And then we wonder, why does my life still stink? You're not willing to correct when God points out sin in your life. When we're disobedient, we bring more pain instead of more blessing. James 4, 7, 8, and 9. James 4, 7, 8, and 9. Let's see here. Brother Yankowski, read those verses for us quickly. 7, 8, and 9. Yes, sir.
God gives us a beautiful formula of how to make peace. I've been helping my daughter with her math homework over the last couple of weeks. And you know what I find is that when my daughter follows the formula, she gets the right answer. When she doesn't follow the formula, she doesn't get the right answer. And uh, Christian, if you want forgiveness from God, you have to follow the formula laid out in Scripture. And you don't get to skip steps. You've got to do all of it. You've got to do all of it. Letter B, we see Aruna's offer. Aruna's offer. And I'll let you read the, the, the verses later. But Aruna owns this threshing floor, okay? And um, he comes out and he says to David, I'll just give it to you. And I'll give you the, the, the animal to be sacrificed. I'll give you the, the tools to do the sacrifice. You can have it. Better see, we see David's offering. You know what David tells Aruna? Nope. I'm not going to take it from you. I'm going to pay you for it. Look at 24 of the chapter, 24 and 25. Last two verses of, of 2 Samuel. And the king said unto Aruna, Nay, but I will surely buy it of thee at a price. Neither will I offer burnt offerings unto the Lord my God of that which doth cost me nothing. Again, if you mark your Bible, underline that. I will not... Uh, uh, let's see here. Neither will I offer burnt offerings unto the Lord my God of that which cost me nothing. That which cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and oxen for 50 shekels of silver, and David built there an altar unto the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord was entreated for the land, and the plague was stayed from Israel. And here's why I'm just going to read what I wrote here. Listen intently, listen on purpose, and we're going to wrap it up. True repentance ought to cost you something. Okay? Repentance that costs you nothing is born of a heart of pride and laziness. True repentance is an emotional sacrifice at the very least. It requires great effort to truly overcome sinful habits and behaviors that hurt your standing with your God. If all you're going to do is say, Lord, I, I shouldn't have looked at that. Lord, I shouldn't have listened to that. Lord, I shouldn't have said that. Lord, I shouldn't have skipped church. I shouldn't have skipped my Bible reading. And then you move on with your day and there's no emotional sacrifice. You know what? You're going to say it the next day. You're going to look at it the next day. You're going to do it the next day. There's got to be a real sacrifice. It's got to cost you something. David said, I'm not just going to let you give me this land. I'm going to buy it off of you. All right, I'm going to end with a cool little Bible nugget that I didn't know until I put this Bible study together, and then we'll go home, all right? The place where the temple, Solomon's temple was built, was on this very site that David bought. David bought this property to stay the, the, the famines, or rather stay the, the, the death angel. And this would be the very location where the temple would be built. Because of David's sin and the great sacrifice that he made, a temple was erected and God dwelled among His people in this place. When you get things right with God, God comes down and you get to experience His power in a very real way. I think that's a great way to end things tonight. That neat little, th neat little fact. Let's stand together and uh, we're going to pray and uh, we're going to go home or hang around a fellowship for a few minutes, whatever you want to do, all right? Let's get right with God and let's stay right with God.